You're listening to Brainwaves on WRBB's 104.9 FM. My name is Piper Leopold. So today we are speaking with James Hammond, born and raised in Hampstead, London, and moved to the U.S. in the 60s. James worked as a photographer in London, but came to the U.S. and worked in finance. He always loved the arts and eventually became an art collector, specifically turning his apartment into a street art safe haven. So James... What got you interested in street art and when? Why and when? Um, I started noticing Tacky 183. Tacky was a Greek delivery boy uh, living up in the Heights. 183, he lived on 183rd Street in Washington Heights. And he used to write Tacky 183 wherever he went on his deliverers. Anywhere in town, you'd see Tacky 183 from the late 60s to the early 70s. And all of a sudden, other people started cottoning on to this Tacky 183, who got an article written about him in the, no less the New York Times. And then what I describe as the Big Bang, which was when Days, Crash, Dondi, to name just a few, put their names in huge colored letters on the side of the subway. This was like 71, 72, when the subway fare was 30 cents, 35 cents, and I was going down to Wall Street. Seeing these names, enormous letters on the side of the subway, was frightening to begin with. It was repellent. I mean, I remember the train coming in, the sixth train coming in, and I would go, oh shit, what's this? You know, like that. It was very scary. But gradually, over a period of time, I got rather fond of all this and I enjoyed it. And yet when I went in the subway car, you couldn't really see out because it was all covered over, the windows and the the steel walls. Anyway, that's a quick way of telling you how I got interested in it because although it was subway art, because of Tacky 183, it was soon all over the streets. So James, I see that you mentioned subway art. Would you consider the art in New York City to have the best street art? Yeah, I think New York, you know, is the epicenter of it. I mean, I've been to other places and seen street art, but I think we have the best. And which artists do you collect now? You know, I'm so out of touch with Au Coron, but I do have some of the masters. I had... Sadly, and I got rid of it, some Jean P- Jean-Michel Basquiat. I do have some Keith Haring and some WK Interact, who were all back in the day people, particularly Keith Haring. He was a, um, he started off in the 70s and when he used to do drawings in the subway. I had a wonderful one, which I'm, sadly I had to sell. But he, he'd do this art, um, in the subway, on the walls, everywhere, as would many of his peers. And um, it was a crime. It was considered damnable graffiti vandalism. But gradually, it became establishment. Why would you say Keith Haring's artwork is so in demand? Oh, you know, it's a nostalgic thing, I think. And it's also to do with marketing. I mean, I must just tell you right off that a lot of the street artists have become famous because um, of good marketing. And I mean, people like Tony Shafrazi, who, by the way, graffitied the Guernica in the Museum of Modern Art, the Picasso masterpiece. He himself did graffiti 
on a museum piece, a very, very important museum piece. And then he became a dealer and represented, among others, Keith Herring. So it's, the answer to your question is marketing, nothing else. Were subway trains the start of many of these artists' careers? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, think, I think definitely. I mean, I remember Day's Crash, Frazier. I mean, a lot of the... Dondi, my word, Dondi became huge, but he died of AIDS, sadly. But because or in spite of the fact that he died, his work is now in great demand because he stopped doing subway art and then just did conventional art, drawings and other things, which were really beautiful. And we used to say when his trains came in with Dondi on it, Dondi, 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 like that. It was fantastic. This was the early 70s, before you were born. (laughs) What would you say the percentage of street artists actually make a living off of their art? Oh, uh, well, you know, some have made a good good living. One of my favourites was Richard Hamilton, who used to do shadow men, life-size figures in the Lower East Side and Clubland when we were going out. And you'd see these figures lurking in the, in the corners of uh, dingy-looking buildings and stuff, and you knew you were going to get mugged. And it turned out it was a drawing, a life-size um, picture by Richard Hamilton. And then, you won't believe this, Richard suddenly became commercial. I mean, he had a whole splash in the magazines, Time, Life, or stuff like that. And um, he told everybody to go stuff it and went to live in exile in East Berlin. This is before the wall fell. So that's another long answer to your question. Some were repelled by commercialism, even though Hamilton now has work that goes for very, very high prices. But he's dead. He was never alive to really see his work marketed. He died. And how did street art progress to exhibit in museums and galleries? Oh, marketing again, you know. I mean, look, this is the thing. I I put up some um, dash or days or, or Richard Hamilton in my art gallery, you know. So along comes the art critic of... The New York Times. Oh, why, this is so good shit, you know. And, um, oh, this should be in a museum. Duh, the museums, yes. And so the museums, not to be left out, think, "Mm, maybe we should have some of this street art. And the Brooklyn Museum, I think, was the first to do it because they had a big show of um, a street art favourite of mine, Swoon, a lady artist. And she took a lot of her colleagues in and they got in the museums. And um, Museum of Modern Art, those two museums, I can tell you, have uh, street art. And what would you consider the line drawn between vandalism and street art? Very good question. There is no difference. (laughs) No, there's no difference because, you know, (laughs) I think that now um, street art is, for various reasons, the pandemic being one of them and people not being able to go to galleries and museums, I think that it is art in the streets, art exhibited in the streets, because the quality now of some of the street art on walls is extraordinary by default. Do you think the street art craze will die down anytime soon, or do you think it's here to stay? Oh, no, I think it's, I mean, I think it's here to stay. It's a frustration. I mean, when you really think about it, I'm an artist, let's say, and nobody wants to represent me in the galleries or anything, no. So I just do it in the street. I mean, I'm an artist. Where am I going to put my big picture? 
I can't put it in mum's bedroom or my own for that matter. I haven't got enough space. So I go on the street and I put up this glorious picture, shall we say, of Jesus Christ or a scene of some kind. Personally, James, why are you compelled to collect street art over art that would be, let's say, Renaissance art or historical art? Why street art? <laughs> Economics. It's funny because, you know, funny you should ask that because I had an envoy of, quote, young collectors from the Museum of Modern Art. I had 45 of them come to my house. And um, the majority of the work that I had then, I had either stolen off the street or got from a street guy and paid virtually nothing for it. So the long answer, that's the long answer to your question, economics. It was cheaper. But, but nevertheless, the modern art um, culture vultures would say, how much did you pay for this? How much you pay? I stole it off the street on Elizabeth and Prince. That was the answer. What would you say are your two favorite pieces of artwork in your home? Richard Hamilton. I have one of his figures similar to the ones that he did to frighten people in the Lower East Side in Clubland. I have one of those on my front door, which is, oh, well, it's so good. really scary. <laughs> and then I have another one that was done on a Marlboro um, cigarette sign in East Berlin that he did when he was first, first exiled himself. So those are my two favorite, both Richard Hamilton. Why are you so drawn to those two? Oh, nostalgic again, because I remember Richard Hamilton's work and being scared by it. I was fooled by it completely. And then the other one, which is the Marlborough cigarette sign, it's a Marlborough sign on tin. And he just um, graffitied over the Marlborough man, the sacred Marlborough cigarette man. And I mean, I just think they're so beautiful and wonderful and crisp. I just love them. How did you manage to get street art from Berlin? Oh, um, no, this, this particular piece came, you know, it, it, a myriad of dealers had this. I've got it on the back. It shows various dealers that have actually had this piece. And finally, I'm not ashamed to tell you that I bought it. I purchased it a long time ago. I mean, now it's literally worth its weight in gold. But when I bought it, it was worth its weight in tin, which is what it was. And that's what I paid. And would you ever consider selling any of this? As I said earlier, I have had of necessity to sell my basket. Two baskets I sold. Um, very bad idea. Bad. Bad. And then I sold a Keith Herring. And I hope, very much hope, that I won't have to sell any more. Absolutely. And James, I've heard you say that the streets are where the best art is. Can you explain what you mean? Yeah, the streets are saying things. Yeah, it's, you know, it's political. It's really, a lot of it is political. Local politics, world politics. A lot of it is, um, I mean, what better place to say, vote Democrat, that when you do a wonderful picture of Jesus Christ in a, 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 on a wall in, in um, Soho? You get your message out. That's the point. So it's really about democracy and getting the word out without needing anyone's permission. Yeah, yeah. Anyone's it's, permission. it's advertising and marketing and, um, and, you know, it's frustration as well. So moving on to more general art, I know you were friends with Andy Warhol. Can you tell me a bit of what he was like? Yeah, well, I mean, at first I knew him at the factory. I, was I met him at a party with Candy Darling, who I mistook for Marilyn Monroe 
who had been resurrected. And I was sure it was Marilyn Monroe, but in fact it was a chap. All, you would almost say the patron saintess. The candy darling, unbelievably beautiful, fell madly in love with her. She thought I was attractive. But that's how I met Andy. Andy, he, because um, Candy Starling was one of Andy Warhol's superstars. Um, so I met him, and he invited me down to the factory with the lady I was with at the time, Sharon. And we went to the factory. It turns out that he had this magazine, which was for self-promotion, really, called Interview. And um, so... Sharon wrote for interview, I did the pictures, and we did a, we really had a wonderful time of it. And I got to see his studio with his artwork. He was doing at the time Mao Zedong's hammer and sickle, skulls, and at any moment I could have taken one, just roll it up, stick it up my trousers, and run for the door, you know, and a lot of people do that. We'll take your wig off, Andy, if you don't give us one of these pictures, we're going, <laughs> like that. I mean, it was really awful, but um, I never did that. And the only thing he actually gave me, I mean, he gave me a lot of stuff like um, Art Deco jewellery and stuff. I'd lost everything, but I have still a pocket watch and a Christmas card to James with love for Andy Warhol. So that was how he was, and he gradually, gradually, gradually became a closer friend, used to come constantly round to my house. We'd have dinner, he'd sign Polaroid pictures of all our guests, and eventually he wanted to be a model when he was very young. I mean, when he was older, sorry. He, in his older days, looked much younger because he worked out with my trainer, Lydia Kendrick, in a little gym that I had in my apartment. And his model agent, Zoli, who died of AIDS subsequently, was um, an incredible agent for models and got Andy two really huge consignments. One was, um, well, it was, they were consignments for his work, which he did portraits of people, and also assignments for a video company called Pioneer. They they actually made um, all kinds of equipment, Pioneer television, stuff like that, and then Vidal Sassoon health and beauty products. So he had Sassoon and Pioneer, and actually I have the very last picture of the shoot that he did for a Vidal Sassoon hairspray. You know, I kind of lost touch with him in and out. I mean, he got very angry with me when I got divorced. And at that time, we met him at a um, at the Museum of Modern Art garden party when he had two people, one on each hand. Oh, James, that's so cool, you know. Um, these are my two new friends. You have to buy their artwork. Jean-Michel, Jean-Michel Basket, of course, and Keith, as in Keith Herring, you should buy their work, they're so good. And it was interesting because Keith Herring and Jean-Michel Basket had latched onto Andy and it was the start of marketing themselves. I know that you were a photographer in your day, but did you ever consider doing street art of your own? Well, I have my own tag, Friedel. Yeah, it's Friedel. I put Luout, L-O-O-O-O-U-T, it's Friedel. And I put that around the place, particularly in the Lower East Side, around Rivington Street and so on. And then we have this tag because we thought that Jesus Christ 
um, was not in fact crucified. He was let go by the Roman soldiers and ended up by boat and by donkey in west of England in a town called Glastonbury. So we have Jesus of Glastonbury stickers and we put them up everywhere. There's one up in Boston, in Rome, everywhere we go, we put them up. So you are a street artist of your own sort. I'm learning on the job as they do in everything. <laughs> Any last words of wisdom you would like to share with us? Don't use the lavatory when the train is standing in the station. Well, James, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Oh, thank you very much, yes. This episode of WRBB's Brainwaves was hosted by Piper Leopold. This recording wouldn't be possible without the help of Caleb Dreisman, our podcast director, and Andrew Sendry, WRBB's general manager. This episode of Brainwaves was mixed and edited by our audio engineers. Special thanks to the WRBB leadership staff, Northeastern University, and Northeastern Student Activity Fee for funding this podcast. Our theme music is W by Mari Getty. Head to wrbbradio.org where you can find the latest episodes of all of our podcasts, listen to our internet live stream, and read up on the latest music reviews. And make sure to follow us all on social media at WRBB Radio. Thanks for tuning in.